As Pastor Phil mentioned, we are going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Um, If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the seat in front of you. Towards the back of the New Testament, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Read along with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. According to a 2019 BBC News report, Christian persecution worldwide is, and I quote, at near genocide levels throughout history, throughout the last 2,000 or so years. It's estimated that there have been 70 million Christian martyrs, right? So 70 million martyrs across 2,000 years. More than half of those have been in the last century. The study went on to show that not only is anti-Christian persecution growing geographically, it was growing in intensity around the world. But what's more, I thought this was interesting, the study went beyond martyrdom, beyond death, and showed, it warned really, of an increasing hostility to Christians and Christian beliefs throughout the world, including in the modern West. One uh, sociologist gentleman by the name of George Yancey, looked at 30 years of data, and what he uncovered was, yes, anti-Christian sentiment has grown, but more than that, those who have the most negative view towards Christians and Christianity have gained significant influence and power in economics, politics, entertainment, and academia. Likewise, those who were most sympathetic to Christian beliefs, those who viewed Christians most favorably, lost significant power in all those spheres. Sociologists recognize that for much of American history, To be a Christian was viewed as a net social good, a social positive. Even amongst non-Christians, to be exemplified by one who embodied traditional Christian beliefs, traditional Christian behaviors, was to be viewed in a socially positive way. Sociologists now recognize that Christianity is a social negative. 
especially amongst the top layers, the top echelon of academia, commerce, entertainment, and politics. Christian beliefs are expressly repudiated. And so while it's highly unlikely in the year 2021 here in Naples, Florida, that you will lose your life on behalf of the gospel, I can't make that same confident statement about your livelihood. To hold to Christian beliefs, to express Christian beliefs, to affirm that there is only one path to God, to affirm that there is such a thing as sin, to claim the name of Jesus Christ in the year 2021 is to risk your ability to earn a livelihood and is to risk your social standing in polite society. You and I, we are ill-prepared to deal with this. We, we lack the muscle memory for how to respond because for the majority of our culture's history of the modern West, we've gotten fat and happy because it's been a generally friendly place to Christians and Christian beliefs. Unlike our Christian brothers and sisters living in places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Nigeria, China, we are very late to the game in figuring out how to respond when the dominant culture of the day would rather we just go away. Now, there are different ways that you can handle adversity. The secular author Nassim Taleb um, talks about three different ways that an object responds to pressure and stress. There are things that are fragile, they break. Think of fine china. The stress comes, it snaps. There are things that are resilient. The pressure comes and they withstand the pressure. And then there are things that are anti-fragile. The pressure, the stress actually makes them stronger. Perhaps the most, um, the easiest to understand example of something that's anti-fragile are our own muscles, right? If, if you work out, if you, whip, uh, if you lift weights, what you are doing is you are causing stress and pressure to your muscles, and in response, your muscles grow stronger and bigger. They are strengthened. Talib would call them anti-fragile. Well, likewise, in times of persecution, our faith may break, it may stay the same, or it may grow stronger. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of believers who came from a Jewish background. Uh, they were beginning to undergo intense persecution. Many scholars believe it was written to Christians living in Rome during the time of Nero. Under Nero, Christianity was illegal, punishable by death. Uh, Nero was particularly merciless. He crucified Christians. He famously fed Christians to lions during gladiator matches. This one's especially charming. He would use Christians lit on fire as torches for his garden parties. That was the context that this sermon, the book of Hebrews, was written. During that, many were tempted, many of these Christians were tempted to leave behind their faith. You see, at that particular era of Rome, Christianity was illegal. Judaism, where most of them had come from, 
was religio licita. It was a permitted religion. Now, that's not to say that Jews did not suffer all sorts of hardship under Rome, but they were not killed for their faith. Rome said, this is not a threat to our power, and so this faith is allowed, but this Christianity thing, nah, not going to tolerate it. So as the pressure and persecution came, many were tempted to put aside the name of Christ, put aside the label of Christian, put aside their association with fellow Christians, and retreat back to their life before Christ. Now, in the text, the author gives three confident responses to persecution, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. We're going to camp out in verses 22 through 25. But before we get there, I need you to hang with me for just a minute because the argument of this text is because of this, therefore that. Because of these reasons, therefore you can have these confident responses. So hang with me. We're going to talk about the reasons uh, briefly, and then we're really going to dig into the responses. All throughout the book of Hebrews, we see a pattern of confident response based on a proper understanding of who Christ is and what he accomplished. Put another way, the book of Hebrews argues that perseverance in the Christian faith is directly proportional to the clarity with which you see Christ, who he is and what he accomplished. So in verses 19 through 21, the author reminds us of two things that we have in Christ, confidence to enter the holy place and confidence in a great high priest. Read again, verses 19 through 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. When the author speaks of confidence to enter the holy place, the first century Jew would understand that to mean a type of, of the presence of God, pointing to the physical presence of God. And so the first reason for confidence given here is a new and living way to enter into the presence of God. We'll talk more about that at length. Uh, but the second reason for confidence is a great high priest. Uh, we have to take off our 21st century American baggage. Um, we hear priest we, we probably think of like a Catholic priest, or maybe we just think it's like a real fancy name for a pastor. But to this audience, they would understand the, the high priest to be the one at the temple who oversees sacrifices to make atonement for the sin of the people. That's how they would understand the term priest. Um, it was a, a repeating cycle, as the book of Hebrews argues. The people would sin, they would be not right with God. The high priest would offer a sacrifice. The people would be right with God again until they sinned again. And, sin. and then there'd be another sacrifice. Ongoing cycle. It's argued all throughout the book of Hebrews, right? Sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. That's what the high priest did. And so the author here and throughout the entire book of Hebrews argues that Christ is a better high priest. Two reasons. Number one, not only was his sacrifice a once and for all sacrifice, it broke that continual cycle. His blood atoned for all sin 
full stop. But he also eternally is our advocate before the Father. He's saying just earlier this morning, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So that's our background context. Two reasons for confidence, confidence to enter the holy place, confidence in a great high priest. Based on those two reasons for confidence, the author then lists three confident responses to persecution, confident responses to trouble and trials. For those of you who like to have tidy and organized notes, let me, let me preview those three things because those can be your headings. Uh, draw near, hold fast, consider one another. I'll say it again. Confident responses to persecution. Draw near, hold fast, consider one another. Let's look first at drawing near. Again, this is uh, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We need to take a moment and understand the weight of what is being communicated here. We tend not to have a very heavy view of what it means to enter into the presence of God. Um, the, I, I think about, I was uh, at a funeral and a family member mentioned, a non-believing family member mentioned, um, well, I'm afraid to come into the church because I'm such a sinner that the roof will probably cave in on me or God will strike me with, li uh, with lightning. Believe it or not, that non-believer had a fairly accurate understanding of how this original audience would understand the presence of God. As you survey the Old Testament, being called into the physical presence of God was generally viewed as a terrifying thing on behalf of sin. Exodus 3, Moses hides his face from the burning bush because he's terrified to be in the presence of God. In Isaiah, he's brought into the presence of the Lord and he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's presence was not something that these converts from Judaism would take lightly at all. Yet this passage says that they can draw near to God with confidence. Now it's important to understand this passage as a whole describes us as having both the ability and the authorization to enter into the presence of God. Uh, maybe a way to help explain the difference. Some of you have dogs, especially big dogs. Right now, you're not home. Your dog probably has the ability to get up onto the nice couch. It physically can get there. It probably... I hope, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how to run your house, but it probably doesn't have the authorization to be up on your couch. Do you see the difference? Ability, authorization. Here, maybe, maybe another picture. Um, I, I was thinking about this. A time I was traveling back from India to the United States on business. Um, my ticket allowed me access to the lounge. You don't travel much, let me, let me unpack that for you. There's the normal seats in the airport, not very comfortable, crowded. Then there's the lounge, 
If you've never been there, I hate to spoil it, it's not much better, right? Uh, the difference is you get some trail mix and a Diet Coke. Um, it's much less exclusive than you would think. You can get into the lounge if you have the right credit card, the right ticket, or in many cases, if you pay 20 bucks. Not all that exclusive, they let me in it, for crying out loud. So, but what you may not know is that major international airports, there's, there's the lounge, and then there's another lounge within the lounge. It's called the flagship lounge. There's no trail mix in the flagship lounge. Um, inside the flagship lounge, you can get a gourmet meal. You can use an office to get some work done. In some, you can even get a massage. It is for very important people, which is to say I've never actually been inside of one um, up until this point in the story that I foreshadow. So me and my traveling companions, we go to the lounge, we show our ticket that shows that we just barely qualify. We get in, we make a beeline for the trail mix, and the host of Hyderabad Airport stops us. He goes, no, 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 you come with me. I'm like, okay, are we in trouble? And he takes us past the second set of doors, and now we're in the VIP area, and we're like, something is not right here. I don't know why I'm here. Well, get this. He takes us past the VIPs into a private suite. So, like, we're in the lounge, inside the lounge, inside the lounge. I, it was bananas. Um, and the whole time, like, I am not supposed to be here. And we're trying to reason with, with this guy, saying, I think you've made a mistake. And so finally, he very quietly comes over to me and he says, listen, I get that you would like your privacy, but I just wanted to let you know that I'm a big fan of your work Mr. Galifianakis. So, some clearly get the reference if you don't. Zach Galifianakis is a comedic actor. He and I, how do I put this gently? We are similarly bearded and similarly built. Um, let me put it less delicately. We are both short, bearded, chubby white guys, and in Hyderabad, India, we look an awful lot alike, evidently. So I cleared up the confusion, made it very clear that I'm not Zach Galifianakis, and we were summarily kicked out. <laughs> Back to our traumas where we belong. Well, you, you get the picture here? We were able to get in there. We were not supposed to be in there. Well, this picture here, it argues that we have access to the presence of God. It's not just the ability to get there. It's not saying, hey, you can sneak in the back door or we'll throw a smoke bomb this way and God won't be looking and you can roll in like a ninja. It's saying you can confidently draw near to the presence of God and the full assurance that you're allowed to be there. Now again, to the Christian convert from Judaism, the idea of drawing near to God with confidence is a radical idea in the Old Testament system, the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt with the Israelites. Only one person could go in the high priest, and not whenever they wanted to. It was under very fixed times and very fixed conditions. And so the original audience would likely view this, this draw near to God with confidence, with some level of suspicion. How could they draw near to God? They know themselves to be sinners. They know that, as the book of Hebrews says, God is a consuming fire. It sounds like a setup. Well, if you look at the text, you'll see the basis for the confident access. First, there's this picture of a true heart. When we hear heart, we think of love. We think of emotions. Some of you who are very literal think of blood being pumped. 
in the Bible, the heart is often used to signify the, the internal life of a person, their thoughts, their emotions, their character. And so a true heart is one that is loyal, somebody who, with everything in them, is loyal to God, is genuinely loyal to God. Now, how do you get that true heart that is genuinely loyal to God? Well, the text explains, because the heart was sprinkled clean. The temple, the priest would wash himself thoroughly before entering the holy place. When Christians come into God's presence, it's not an external cleanliness that we're talking about. It's heart purity. And so just in the same way that in Exodus 24, Israel was made clean by the sprinkling of blood, so the blood of Christ sprinkles believers clean. Believers are able to confidently draw near to God because on the basis of being washed by the blood of Christ, their heart is fully loyal to God. The text goes on to describe our bodies as washed with pure water. Now, I believe the, the author is employing a double meaning here. The um, Jewish convert would recognize that anyone coming into the temple had to ritually uh, wash themselves, ritually bathe to be allowed access into the temple. And so they would understand that word picture there. Um, Christian converts, early Christian converts, would probably also pick up on a, a wink and a nudge towards baptism, an allusion towards baptism. Now, to be clear, baptism is not the basis by which Christians can draw near to God. Baptism is an external symbol of an internal reality of having been washed clean, forgiven um, internally. So the argument here is that in times of trial and persecution, the answer is draw near confidently to God. Think about a, um, a child confidently drawing near to their parents when they're scared. Um, when we get the Florida thunderstorms, some of you know what it means to have your children confidently draw near to mom and dad's bed because they're scared, right? Uh, similarly, the Christian has the ability to draw near to God in prayer, especially as pressures come. Now, psychologists say that humans have two responses to trouble, fight or flight, draw your sword or withdraw completely. And we may think that we are limited to those two options, but the author here argues for a third better way for how Christians should respond to persecution. Don't draw your sword, don't withdraw completely, rather draw near to God. The psalmist in Psalm 121 asks the question, where does my help come from? And then he answers his own question. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. So the first confident response to times of trouble, times of persecution, is to draw near to God. The author then lists a second reason. Hold fast. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. I love the word picture here of holding fast, of clinging on, holding on for dear life. 
Um, I think of a story that I heard, um, it still gives me nightmares, of somebody who got onto a roller coaster and the lap bar didn't fully deploy, and so they had to hold on for dear life so that they didn't fall out. Now, I'm sure there were a lot of things going through that person's head, but two things that probably were going through their head is number one, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And number two, what is it I should hold on to? What gives me the best chance of survival here? Well, in this passage, yes, these believers are exhorted to hold on, but the author also makes clear what they're to hold on to. The confession of our hope. For members and regular attenders, um, you know that Justin has been preaching through a series called Foundations of Faith, which go over our core doctrinal confessions. We've talked about the um, trustworthiness of Scripture, the holiness of God, the reality of sin and the consequence of sin, and the way of salvation. These are the truths that the author is arguing must be held on for dear life during times of persecution and trouble. Now, there's also a really interesting uh, phrase here in the verse, right? We can see... Um, Hold, on, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The, the Greek word here is aklane, which literally means that which cannot bend. This is an intense word. To give you an idea of the level of intensity that this word conveys, this word is also used in Greek literature at the time to describe somebody who successfully persevered through torture. Picture a prisoner of war being interrogated by the enemy who doesn't break who doesn't divulge the secrets that they're not supposed to tell. That's the strength of this word. It is a very strong word. Another um, example of how this word is used. Um, the earliest known post-biblical account of martyrdom is the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was an old man. He was a Christian. He probably was the last surviving person to know an apostle uh, personally. He was arrested, and the proconsul urged him on behalf of his, on account of his old age to reject Christ and live. In fact, he pleaded with him, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served my Lord and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? The proconsul responded by threatening to have him burned alive. And Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. That is the picture of unwaveringly holding on to the confession of hope. Polycarp, he could have said, Yeah, what is it you want me to say? Fine, I'll say that. Go on with my life. No, he did not give any ground. He was unwavering for the gospel. So the author reminds them to hold fast to the confession, but he gives them a reason to hold fast to the confession. Um, he who promised is faithful. God's promises are perfectly reliable, and because of that, those who trust in him can have confident faith. Now, in our current context, we often don't associate faith and confidence. We view faith as a blind leap. But in the Bible, faith is most often portrayed 
as trust in God who has proven himself trustworthy. It is not blind at all. So to hold fast, we must be crystal clear on two things. Number one, what are we holding on to? It's the confession of our hope. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. It asks the question, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that is the confession of our hope to hold on to. But we also need to be crystal clear on why we can trust that hope. And it's because the one who promised is faithful. When a loan officer considers whether or not to extend credit to somebody, they look at their credit score. The credit score is simply a numerical representation of does this person do what they say they're going to do? Can we look at their past behavior and see that they have a pattern of doing what they said? Well, forgive the crass metaphor, we can trust God because he has a perfect track record of doing exactly what he said he was going to do without fail. If we were to pull up God's credit score, it'd be like one of those old cartoons where the dial would spin around a million times and the whole thing would catch fire in a puff of smoke. We can't even measure how faithful God is. He is infinitely faithful. His promises cannot fail, and so he's perfectly reliable. So you can see why that is a basis of confidence, why in times of persecution, hold fast to the promises of God, because everything that he promised will come to pass. So we've seen two confident responses so far. Draw near, hold fast. If we stop there, we, we'd probably come away with the wrong idea, right? Because those both sound like individual actions. Me and God, draw near, hold fast. This idea of a completely personal religion is a modern Western construct. Uh, the faith of the Bible is communal. God called a people for himself. And so this last confident response is a communal response. Consider one another. I'll read from Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The first verb here is consider. Uh, consider means to contemplate, to think deeply about, to intentionally uh, ponder. It is very intentional language. It's not saying, ah, if you get around to it and you run into this person, you have nothing else going on, maybe off the top of your head, uh, give some thought to it. No, it's, it's, like, it's a picture of like sitting down and putting rigorous thought into something ahead of time. It's not spontaneous. Now, what is it there to consider? How to stir up one another to love and good works. The, the word stir here can also be translated as agitate or provoke, but I actually like stir. Uh, imagine, if you will, if, if I had a, a clear glass pitcher of water and I poured a packet of Kool-Aid in that water and all settled down to the bottom until I took my spoon and I agitated it, I stirred it up, I mixed it up, and that's when it turns into Kool-Aid. The metaphor ends there. Um, 
But that's the picture here. Consider how to mix each other up, how to agitate each other to love and good works. Now, the author gives a negative example and a positive example of what that looks like here. My, uh, my kids were gifted a subscription to Highlights for Children magazine. They still publish Highlights for Children magazine. I thought that was really cool. And if you're familiar with the magazine, you'll be happy to know that it still features the comic strip Goofus and Gallants. A couple chuckles. If you're not familiar with Goofus and Gallants, um, this has been in Highlights magazine since the 1940s. It's a two-panel comic strip. Um, it's two boys, Goofus and Gallants, presented with the same situation, and without fail, true to his name, Goofus always chooses the goofiest, most self-centered, wrongest thing you could possibly do in that situation, and Gallant chooses the morally upstanding thing to do. Some examples for you. Goofus takes the big easy chair ahead of his grandmother. Gallant waits for his grandfather to be seated and then chooses an available chair. Or this one. Goofus throws rocks at birds. Gallant gives them bird seed. You get the idea? Negative example, positive example. Well, similarly, there's, there's a negative and a positive example given here. The negative example, and I realize I'm implying this is the Goofus example, um, is those who neglect to meet together. Now, really important context here. In this original setting, they weren't meeting together because of fear of persecution. They weren't meeting together because to meet publicly with Christians was to be marked as a Christian and thus marked for arrest and death. This is a, a good, we would see a good excuse for, for avoiding the gathering. This was not, eh, football's on. This was not, I really feel like going to breakfast and I want to beat the church crowd. This was not, eh, I'll listen to the podcast later. My bed is comfy and besides, Justin's not even preaching. Like, this actually, <laughs> sorry, I had to. Uh, this was actually like, we would think a really good reason. Like, if you show up, you will be identified as a Christian and you will lose your life. Um, yet even with what we might see as a good reason, the author warns them not to forsake the gathering. How can you stir up one another to love and good works? How can you encourage one another if you don't meet? So the author warns, he gives that as a negative example. And then the positive example is those who are encouraging one another. And then there, there's a curious phrase all the more as you see the day drawing near. The English translation undersells how, how dynamic this sentence is. Um, maybe there's a way of explaining it. If, if I had a rope and a pulley and I handed you one end of the rope and I said, the faster you pull your end, the faster this end will go up. Or we had a seesaw up here, a teeter-totter, and I said, the more force you apply to your side, the more force will come up the other side, right? Two interrelated variables. Well, similarly, the way that this phrase works in Greek, it's saying the more you see the day drawing near, the more you should be encouraging one another. You see that? There, there's a relationship between the two things. Now, what is the day being referred to? It's the day of Christ's return, the day that Christ will judge those who are opposed to him and deliver those who belong to him. Now, you may, you may say, hold on a second, what? That's, 
what does that have to do with this context, right? The, the author is saying, hey, meet together, encourage one another. Why, why this image of Christ's return in there? What does that have to do with anything? Well, there's two significant connections between gathering together and encouraging one another and the day of our Lord approaching. The first, believers gathered together on earth in worship previews an eternal reality where Christians from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be gathered in worship. I recall hearing a story of a immature young Christian telling their pastor, I love Jesus, but, but I hate church. And the pastor said, if you don't care for the assembly of God's people worshiping God, I have really bad news about eternity for you. Like, it pictures an eternal reality. But in this context, there's another very significant connection, and it relates to persecution. In Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples ask him what the signs will be for the second coming. And Jesus explains they will be delivered up to tribulation, they'll be put to death, they'll be hated by all of the world for his name. He warns that many who call themselves Christians will fall away, their love will grow cold, they will, they will stop gathering together, they will, in response to these trials, their faith will be shattered. And so the author of Hebrews is, is building on the same idea, but in inverse. He's saying, as you see trials and tribulations coming, don't hate each other, love each other. Don't let your love grow cold, stir up one another to love. You see, you see what's happening here? He's saying, as this persecution comes, as the day of the Lord draws near, don't be those ones who run away from the faith. Be those ones who encourage one another in the faith. It's a group effort. In modern Western culture, we struggle with that. We like the lone hero. We like the person who's left to themselves, standing down the odds and pulling through by the sure determination of will. We like our heroes and our heroines to say things like, to quote Julie Andrews in the film The Sound of Music, I have confidence in confidence alone because I have confidence in me. Now, I just lost a lot of manliness points with some of you for that Julie Andrews reference, so let's try this. This, this reference is so dripping with testosterone, it practically smells like beef jerky. Two westerns, compare and contrast. In this hand, we have Gary Cooper in the film High Noon. In this hand, we have John Wayne in Rio Bravo. If you've never seen either of these films before, um, very similar plots. They're westerns, folks. It's, it's not that complex. There really are only so many plots, but um, very similar plots. A western lawman gets word that a big bad guy has been released from prison, and he's coming to town with his gang, and he has it out for our hero. He aims to kill him. That's the plot that's the same between the two films. But it, the similarities end there. Um, High Noon, as one critic put it, is about facing trials alone, about how you can't trust anyone but yourself when the going gets tough. All throughout the film, Gary Cooper's character is trying to get people to help him. 
The judge turns him down, his own deputy turns him down, his friends turn him down, the church turns him down. And so in the final showdown, it's him versus the bad guys. And just in case it's not clear, the camera then zooms way out and there is not a soul to be found coming to save him. Contrast that with John Wayne's Rio Bravo. At the end, or the, the, the message of Rio Bravo, the, the solution to this problem, is standing up to evil with your flawed but loyal friends as you stir each other up to courage. The end of the film, the final showdown, John Wayne is surrounded by friends and accomplices, so much so that he throws up his hands in exasperation and says, who's going to show up next? Now, I would caution you about finding too many moral lessons from John Wayne films, but in this one, it's a good point and it agrees with scripture. It's better to face trials together than alone. Argument, argument is simple. As persecution increases, in order to persevere, Christians need to stick together. The book of Ecclesiastes gives applicable wisdom here. One may be overpowered, two can resist, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. This principle is as applicable to us today as it was to the original audience of Hebrews. Each of us as brothers and sisters in Christ have the responsibility and the privilege to encourage one another, build one another up, and stir one another to love and good works. So in this passage, the author gave three confident responses to persecution. And while we don't face the exact same challenges that they do today, we do know what it feels like to live in a world that increasingly finds Christian beliefs intolerable. We do know what it feels like to feel the pressure to not publicly identify with Christ. We do know what it feels like to have some of the most powerful members of society openly advocate for things that are against Scripture. That we can relate to. And we can look to the same passage for the same confident response. Confidence in Christ is what allows us to persevere through trials. Now this morning, you may find yourself in one of three groups. Those who don't have this confidence, those whose confidence is shaky, and those whose confidence is strong. And so, to those three groups, I offer three concrete actions, applications, if you will. Receive, remember, and reflect. That's right, Justin isn't here, but his spirit lives on. We are doing alliteration. Receive, remember, reflect. The first one, receive God's free gift. So this first group may say, Dave, I don't know what that confidence looks like. I don't feel like I can confidently draw near to God. All I know is I'm a messed up sinner. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me explain to you exactly what we mean when we say the confidence of our hope. I'll explain it from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1 explains there is a God who created everything. He is holy. He is good. He is loving. He is just. He rightfully rules over everything and he created everything. Hebrews 2, 5 through 8 says, man, you and I, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. God says it himself. Of all the things he created, man 
is the pinnacle of his creation. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever, enjoying perfect fellowship with him. So what happens? Hebrews 3 and 4 explains our predicament. Even though God is good and he deserves our allegiance, our hearts are rebellious, our hearts are unbelieving, we sin against the one who made us. And Hebrews also explains that the penalty for this sin is that one day everyone, you and I, everybody will be judged and that the penalty for sin, for any disobedience against the good and holy God is a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. That's Hebrews. That's not me. But Hebrews then lays out the good news. While all of us, you and I, all of us, sin and deserve wrath, there is one who never sins. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to earth and lived the perfect life that you and I could not and would not live. He then laid down his life as the perfect sacrifice. He paid the penalty for sin that you and I deserve. He died and he rose again and then he ascended into heaven where now he forever saves to the utmost all of those who come to God through him. This salvation is not based on how good you are. You can never be good enough. It's not based on how hard you work. You could never work hard enough. This salvation is through grace. It is a free and undeserved gift. It is received by grace through faith. And so the first action I would share this morning is to receive God's free gift. Jesus says that his sheep know his voice. If you are hearing the gospel this morning and you recognize your shepherd calling you home, I have incredible news for you. All of these promises, all of the promises of Christ require nothing more than for you to repent, believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and follow him. If you have questions about what that means, please come see me, see one of the other pastors, see any other church member. We would love to tell you about the confidence that we have in Christ. We would love for today to be the day of salvation where you can be reconciled to your heavenly Father and confidently drawn near to him. All right, so some of you are in Christ. And you may be feeling not so confident. You may perhaps look at the sin in your life and say, I don't know, I did some pretty bad things before I became a Christian, and oh, by the way, I still struggle with some pretty bad things today. And so you may doubt that you can draw near to God. You may doubt in times of persecution that you can hold on to this hope. You may say, this is not for me, I'm too bad. Um, Or perhaps you're not feeling confident, not because of yourself, because of the world around you. You say, Dave, turn on the TV, look outside. Do you not see what's going on in the world? There is turmoil, there is pain, there is sin. Maybe God changed his mind. Friends, if this describes you this morning, I would urge you, remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. The saying in sports, past performance predicts future success. God's track record is unassailable. One of my favorite pictures in the Bible. It's in uh, Joshua 3. The Lord 
parts the Jordan so that Joshua and the Israelites can walk across. And when they make it across, God tells Joshua, gather up 12 stones and build a monument that will stand forever. And when your children ask about these stones, you tell them about the miracle that God performed for you today. Friends, if you're struggling to hold fast to your faith, I would urge you to reflect on all the many ways that God has proven himself faithful in your life. Friends, stack some stones. Think through the ways that God has delivered you from trial. Think through the ways where at the time you didn't understand what was going on, but now when you look back, you can see God's kind, fatherly hand leading you through that trial. Think about how he has orchestrated things to work for your good. I would encourage you in times of wavering doubt to literally get yourself a number two pencil and some paper and write down all the ways that God has proved himself to be faithful to you. You can trust the promises of God because he is trustworthy. Even when things are difficult, even when you have too big a view of your own sin and too small of a view of God's grace, even when, as Martin Luther wrote, this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. You can hold fast to the truth because he who promised is faithful. Finally, if you're in the group that would say that your confidence is strong, well, praise the Lord. And to you, I would offer the following action. Reflect your faith to others. The Christian faith is a team sport. The Bible uses the picture of a body. The strong body parts support the weak. As persecution and trials come, actively consider how to stir up one another and how to encourage one another. Two concrete ways you can do that. Uh, the first, intentionally consider one another. You want to know a really practical way to do that, church members? Pull up the church directory and choose some names and pray for those people. I know many people do that. Um, in our church covenant, we promise to pray for one another, and that's a really easy way to do that, to go through the list. But as you're praying through people, I would challenge you to intentionally pray about how you personally can stir up that person specifically to love and good works. Might sound something like this. Father, thank you for putting this person or that person in my life. Thank you for their faithful ministry. Lord, use me to strengthen them. Use me to build up their faith. Lord, give me concrete ways that I can spur them to love and good works. Help us to advance the gospel together. Pray those types of prayers about the church body, and you will strengthen each other's strengths. A second way to reflect your hope to others is by reminding them of God's faithfulness, reminding them of the confession of our hope. It can be done in several ways. It can be done in a discipleship context. It can be done in a, over a cup of coffee. But one way that we have the opportunity to encourage one another is through worship. Now, we often tend to think of worship as a completely vertical thing. Um, and it's true, the Bible does describe um, worship as being uh, having a vertical dimension, you and God. 
But the Bible also speaks of a horizontal dimension to worship. All of us. Ephesians 5.19 refers to worship as addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You catch that? Addressing one another. That's interesting. Colossians 3.16 refers to singing spiritual songs as a way of teaching and admonishing one another. Have you ever considered that? When we, when we sing the truths that are contained in these songs, yes, we are doing it as an act of worship before the Almighty God, but we are also encouraging the faith of those around us. In just a moment, we're going to do just that. We're going to close our time together with one final song, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. I love this song. I think this song embodies this sort of mutual building up of each other's faith through worship. The song is a question and answer format. It asks, what is our hope in life and death? And answers, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to him. And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Let's pray. Father, we know that we can trust your promises because you are trustworthy. You are reliable. You are true. And we know that everything that you decide to do will surely come to pass. We know that all that you promise, you will faithfully do. So strengthen us in our faith, Lord, even as we walk in a world that hates the truth. Let us draw near to you through the new and living way that Christ provided. With the confidence that comes from walking in Christ's righteousness and not our own. Help us to remain steadfast and confident as we hold fast to our confession of hope. Give us love and passion for one another, such that we are always considering how to stir up one another to love and good works. Turn our hearts away from the troubles of this world and towards the hope we have in you. Help us to be the salt and light in this world while at the same time remaining uncorrupted by the sins of this world. Make us a sure witness to the hope that is salvation through Christ. Even so, come quickly, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.